But first, to Bruce Shapiro. The rhetoric is getting more dangerous, the war in Ukraine, with talk of dirty bombs and Joe's coming under a lot of pressure to try and negotiate a ceasefire in the war in Ukraine from his own party, Bruce. Well, this is there's a very interesting split uh, emerging among Democrats and the Biden ranks, who until now um, have been at least publicly united um, in supporting Biden's policy. Yesterday, 30 uh, Democratic members of the House of Representatives, all liberals, progressive Democrats, uh, led by Pramila Jaipal, the chair of the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus, uh, called on Biden in an open letter to um, create what they're describing as a proactive diplomatic push, that is to negotiate directly with Russia uh, to try to bring an end to the war. Uh, the Biden administration's uh, viewpoint, up until now anyway, and in response to this letter still, is that actually uh, the aggrieved party here is Ukraine, that it's up to President Zelensky and the the, uh, the people of Kiev to decide when and how to engage with Russia, um, and that, uh, you know, if you talk to people and more privately on the inside, what they're saying is, look, um, this war is about, uh, as Senator Chris Murphy said in a tweet yesterday, this is about standing up to a bully, and the only thing we can do is kind of keep pumping money and arms into this um, until Russia withdraws. Uh, you know, the the Zelensky view was actually very supportive of negotiation prior to Russia's invasion. It has since turned into a much harder line saying Russia simply needs to leave the territory it annexed two months ago, the territory it invaded in February, and the territory that it invaded uh, in Donbass uh, in 2014. Just Russia go home. Um, it, it, this reflects an underlying divide in American policy here that has been quietly simmering in the background and now has burst publicly. Now, um, some, what, some Russia experts, uh, Bruce, insist that Putin will only negotiate uh, with what he sees as a, as a comparable superpower, and that's the USA. Well, th and that is, you know, that may turn out to be true. I think it's also the reality that back-channel negotiation has been and is going on. And indeed, a little of that leaked out this week when it, we were informed that there was um, direct contact between Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, and his Russian counterpart. Um, they've been negotiating this week, in fact, over this dirty bomb issue. So, you know, there is private talking. I think the challenge that these progressive Democrats uh, face here is that their ranks include a lot of folks who up until a couple of months ago, up until after the U.S. invasion, or sorry, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, really showed very little interest in Ukraine. Um, it was primarily the sort of a more hawkish wing of the Democratic Party, which had been paying attention to Ukraine's 
ongoing struggle for a democratic civil society and to um, navigate its independence in the face of Russia. Um, and, you know, frankly, the Progressive Caucus includes some folks who have an even stronger view, which is that Ukraine really, that, that Russia has a legitimate claim on Ukraine historically and politically and that it should be within Russia's zone of interest as a matter of diplomacy. That's a minority within the Progressive Caucus, but it's there. Um, and then there is, you know, the other, what you might call the pragmatic view among progressives, which is, as well, all wars end in diplomacy and let's make sure this one ends sooner rather than later. Um, the challenge, of course, is not on the U.S. side. The challenge, frankly, is President Putin, who takes every opportunity to de-escalate and instead, um, whether it's because he's fending off his, his own right flank or because of his own messianic vision of a new Russian empire, um, seems to feel free, as he did this week with a growing number of transfers of children and orphans out of Russian-held territory, seems um, determined to commit war crimes virtually every week. Progressives find themselves in in a tough place on this one, and that's not to say that that they're wrong, but that they don't have a lot of political leverage on this one. The Biden administration is very clear on its goals, and it seems to be unwavering in its commitment that, as President Biden said, there will be no, you know, no negotiations over Ukraine without Ukraine. And of course, uh, it's difficult to go into negotiations without undermining the UN Charter. Indeed. Well, um, this is about a sovereign nation um, defending itself, albeit with a lot of uh, money and a lot of arms from the West. I, the Biden administration, I think, is also mindful of how often in the past the U.S. has betrayed um, people struggling for sovereignty who have you know, signed up for U.S. support, whether that is the Kurds in Iraq, in a different way, though it's about U.S. occupation, the uh, you know Afghan civil society, the Biden administration is not keen to be uh, portrayed as abandoning um, a nation struggling for democratic independence um, and European identity in the face of of a Russian invasion, uh, to see be seen as selling out the Ukrainians. This is not something the Biden administration wants. So it's a you know it's a complicated picture. And of course, of course across the aisle, we've got uh, many Republicans questioning the cost, and uh, you know they they're almost seeing the current situation as helping with the winning of the House. Well, indeed. And that's, you know, for, uh, former President Trump and the MAGA Republican allies have adopted um, not just a, not a pro-negotiation um, stance, but uh, an anti-interventionist stance altogether. They've said this is not America's sphere of interest. And they are hoping that since Ukraine is pretty low on most U.S. voters' priorities in the face of the economy, etc. cetera. Uh, they're hoping that this will help turn the tide toward them. Um, and there is a, a, a kind of point where the anti-interventionist left and the isolationist right meet on, on the Ukraine issue. And we, we have to say that too. Again, there's a faction in the anti-interventionist left that 
simply has seen um, that saw the Maidan rebellion as an exercise in in U.S. interventionism, which is an absurd distortion of history. There are anti-interventionists on the left who accept President Putin's description of that 2014 um, Maidan civil society 2000, uh, uprising as uh, as as a coup rather than as a a popular rebellion against a corrupt corrupt oligarchic led Russian ally who had. Um, betrayed his own people and shot his own people at the Maidan. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of myth-making both left and right going on in this in the face of the ongoing horrors of Ukraine. Now, let's go back to where we left off last week touring some of the more interesting midterm races and uh, let's go to Alaska. This is totally fascinating, and if you want a microcosm of how insanely complicated American politics are in this most important midterm since the U.S. Civil War, most consequential, and if you want to know why they are so unpredictable, we can look at Alaska. Now, Alaska has, first of all, been mostly Republican in who it's elected for quite a long time. Um, it's incumbent Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is a, a sometimes described as a centrist conservative. She's someone who has broken with Republican ranks occasionally on things like Supreme Court appointments. She's one of those who you're, you're always looking to count when you're wondering how the Senate is going to go. She did something last night that no Republican uh, in recent American political history in high office has done. Um, in the House race, that is going on at the same time as her Senate re-election race, um, Lisa Murkowski endorsed the Democrat, endorsed um, the Democrat who was elected, uh, uh, Patola, who was elected in the ranked choice um, short-term election a few months ago, who now Mary Patola is going uh, Peltola is going for a full term. And here We're Lisa talking Murkowski, about the first Alaskan native in Congress. The first Alaskan native in Congress, the first Democrat in Congress from Alaska in a generation, uh, and the first election, actually, that's happened with uh, Alaska's new ranked choice voting system, which you all understand much better than, than we do, right? And Lisa Murkowski said that she was stepping over Sarah Palin, the former governor, former vice presidential candidate, stepping over another MAGA Republican and instead endorsing Democrat Mary Peltola, um, who as uh, as the best person, as her, her top-ranked candidate. And at the same time, um, Murkowski herself is running for re-election and because it's a ranked choice system, she has got a... Um, a MAGA Republican running a very hard race to her right, and she's in a very close race. So what we're seeing here in Alaska, which you think of as traditionally Republican territory, is a Democrat making inroads in a House seat, a Republican needing to embrace that Democrat in order to hold office, and at the same time, that same, conserv that same moderate Republican's own Senate seat kind of up for grabs. This is, you know, Alaska is a wild state. This is a wild election. But in its closeness, in the stakes, 
in the shifting alliances, it mirrors what is going on in other ways that are a little bit less visible because Alaska is the only state with a ranked choice system, but are visible in other ways from Pennsylvania to Florida to Georgia to the other states that we have been watching over the last few months. Now, Alaska is a big place physically, but quite a small population, only 600,000, and Alaskan natives make up 15% of the population. They do, and that is one of the... uh, you know, one of the factors that elected Mary Peltola uh, the first time around a couple of months ago uh, in the interim election in which she was, uh, in which she ran. And, you know, Lisa Murkowski herself, though she is from Republican royalty, her, her father was a U.S. senator and governor of Alaska and actually appointed her to the job. She actually became, when she was, became U.S. senator, the first uh, Alaska-born um, politician to hold federal office from Alaska, right? So there are deep cultural and historical resonances going on in this election. And again, we find mirrors of that elsewhere in, where, you know, in Georgia, we are pitting the legacy of the historic legacy of the civil rights movement against the revived um, nostalgia for the Confederacy and the old Deep South. This Bruce, is, I've, got to, I've got to wind you up. Uh, we will talk again in seven days. The voice of Bruce Shapiro, uh, Exec Director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. G'day, potties. If you like discussions that get beyond the headlines and help you make sense of the big trends in business and politics, check out uh, Saturday Extra with my colleague Geraldine Doog on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.